1: I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted that each of you can attend and participate in today's teleconference on employing F1 students who are either on Curricular Practical Training, CPT, or Optional Practical Training, OPT, and issues relating to transitioning from the F1 student status to an H1B status. I have with me two of my brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney at our firm, who has only been at the firm for 16 plus years at this point, and Anna Stepanova, also a member who has been with the firm close to a decade at this point, coming to 10 years in the next year or so. So as you can see, we are, have a bunch of really smart, bright, talented, caring people that are going to fight for your success, that are here to guide you and mentor you as you f- figure out issues relating to students. In today's uh, talk, we will discuss issues that will come up when you're employing foreign national students, and then, as I just mentioned, the transition to the H1 issues. It will also be helpful for you as employers to understand the procedures and what you need to put in place to ensure that you comply with the H-1B program and with I-9 rules, uh, which is to comply with federal rules relating to hiring your employees. Obviously, we're going to talk about the rules for employment authorization or work authorization for students, which we all know can be fairly convoluted and Common issues that we're going to discuss on the types of employment for F-1 students who are on CPT or OPT. And finally, um, you know, the timing of the issue and how we plan everything is very, very important so that the, the student is able to continue working for you and your business and also so that the student is not left without employment or salary or income during the F-1 process. So we'll be guiding you through that, and with the H-1B employment issues. And I always make it a point to say this: I can't believe I forgot to say that Anna Stepanova was an international student advisor or a designated school official with one a major university in the Midwest. So clearly, her knowledge is not just as a lawyer, but also as someone who has walked in the shoes at the university and seen major problems that can happen, either because the university messes up things, the student forgets to file on time, or you as employers don't provide the required information. So with that, if I can jump in, Aaron, can I ask you to discuss briefly what a little bit about the curricular practical training or CPT?
0: I certainly can discuss curricular practical training. I'm not sure about how brief I can be, so you'll have to help me out on that regard. (laughs) But a curricular practical training is for students who are still pursuing their course of study. And one core requirement for CPT is that the training be an integral part of the established curriculum. Generally, the training meets the requirement if the student registers for academic credit or it's required for the program of study. Um, Also, there should be an agreement between the school and the employer, which is termed by the regulation as a cooperative agreement. Generally, the student needs to be enrolled full-time for a full academic year before becoming eligible for CPT. However, there are some exceptions to that particular requirement. Uh, One exception is if the program requires mandatory hands-on practical training during the first year if that's the case then CPT would be authorized right away Uh, unfortunately there's not a lot of programs that are out there some examples might be uh, the MBA programs have some of them have it there are some engineering programs that have it also Uh, you really have to look to find that Uh, the second one is if the student is already in a program or just completed a program and they're transferring to a new program of study and there's no interruption between the two programs then, at that point in time, the accumu- um, at that point in time, since there's no interruption between those two programs, the student would still remain eligible in the second program to be able to start CPT uh, right away. Um, CPT authorization does not require USCIS approval and it can be issued by the DSO on the form I-20.
1: Okay, thank you Aaron. So since uh, Anna, since Aaron just mentioned about how the DSO, which you were a DSO, issues the I-20, can you describe maybe uh, some of the common situations or problems that you may have encountered with
2: the CPD program? Uh, absolutely Sheila. So here in our line of work when uh, students come to us with problems, we see that problems originate in the two major areas. The first one is USCIS commonly asks questions about co op agreements, whether or not there was a co op agreement, and that's something that Aaron just talked about. One of the main criteria it's written in the regulation, or at least that's what USCIS requir- uh, perceives it to be. And uh, also, USCIS is commonly asking whether to show that CPT is an integral part of the established curriculum. That Mm -hmm. is a regulatory term as well. So as also Aaron said, MBA with concentration in IT, engineering, so MBA degrees, I should say, are very, very popular nowadays. And we see a lot of problems in that area where somebody who is uh, currently pursuing an MBA degree with concentration in IT, for example, but they're working on CPT as a computer programmer or software engineer. So students are not supposed to be working in their uh, concentration field or their um, minor. They're supposed to be working in the field of their major. So you as employers should pay attention to the major, and um, that should always be true, that if you're offering a position, say, uh, software engineer, that the student has to major in the program that relates uh, in... i uh, not very clear. Are you saying concentration then is not a major? Concentration is not a major, Sheila. Concentration, maybe you can think about it uh, in terms of uh, being similar to major minor. So, for mm-hmm. example, somebody can major in... Uh, information technology, but uh, they could minor in Spanish, for example. So they can only be uh, doing CPT in information technology. Mm-hmm. So likewise, here, somebody who is doing an MBA with concentration in IT, IT is a sort of a minor, and uh, it should not be uh, provide the field for CPT authorization, and I should say that MBAs with concentrations are extremely popular. They are on the rise, and students—you will see students that do concentrations in the MBA program all the time. So that, but nevertheless, concentrations should not provide the field for the CPT authorization. Okay. On the other hand, um, USCS wants to make sure that students don't seek cpt authorization to just be employed in other words they don't enroll in study and they don't uh, change or uh, extend their status or come here in F1 status as a way around uh, the inability to receive some kind of employment authorization or such as h1b which we're going to talk about in a minute so the uh, main goal the primary goal for somebody on F1 status should be to engage in study, not so much to work. So when USCIS sees all the time, uh, year after year, somebody engaged in CPT, they are very suspicious of what this that person is really doing. So they need to make sure that the person is pursuing full time enrollment, which is uh, always the requirement. Even if you if you, the student is engaged in CPT on a full time basis, they um, their focus should be on study, not so much on employment. Okay. Employment, excuse me.
0: And Anna, I guess this is very significant because um, since it's the DSO who's approving the CPT. So USCIS immigration is never really seeing it until it comes for a change of status or something else. So when these see CPT, it's the first time.
2: Yes. So these types of problems—that's a very good point. These types of problems usually arise when somebody is changing their status from F1 to H1B, for example, which is the main topic of our discussion today. And USCIS has a chance to look at the person's entire immigration history, and that gives them the chance to uh, actually go into the CPT authorization history okay. and CPT work.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Anna, and thank you, Aaron, for giving some insight there. So let's now jump from the curricular practical training, or CPT, to OPT, or optional practical training. So what is OPT? As many of you may already know, OPT requires authorization from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and it is not employer-specific. It's authorized generally for 12 months, unless you have the STEM extensions, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute. I guess, Aaron, I'll have you discuss that if you don't mind. But basically, it gives you up to 12 months to work in a field directly connected with your education. It can be approved or authorized prior to and after the completion of study. It, it's that, so the prior to is a pre-completion OPT, and which can be authorized up to a maximum of only 20 hours per week when school is in session, or post-completion OPT, which is a regular one for 12 months. And like the CPT, it direct has to be directly related to the stu- student's program of study, it is subject to the one full academic year of full-time enrollment before it can be authorized, with some minor exceptions. What does that mean? It means that the student has to have been a student on F-1 status for 12 months before even being eligible to apply and get this approval. So, if your if the chi- if the parent was on F, uh, on H-1, for example, and the child was on H-4, uh-uh, won't work. You have to switch that child at some point. Uh, to F1 to be able to take advantage of it for 12 months. Also, the student may not start employment until the USCIS has issued the EAD or the Employment Authorization Document, even if this occurs past the requested start date. A lot of times people think, oh, I've just filled in my application so I can go start my work. Or if they were already studying and working, they think I can continue to uh, work with the employer and the answer is no. You have to wait for the EAD to be issued. The 90 day unemployment maximum in this case would not start until the EAD is issued and we're gonna explain that what that means in a, in a little while. But that's the maximum time in the 12 month period that a student is allowed not to be legally employed with to, to, to meet the EAD requirements. And the last point is Per the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, or SEVP, one of the permissible times of OPT employment is an unpaid internship or volunteering. So now as you as employers, don't get ideas here. Don't try to take advantage, because then you know that the person may not stay forever. But unpaid employment should not violate labor laws just to satisfy the OPT requirement. There was some debate where USCIS was giving companies and businesses a hard time saying, show us proof. Of, your, uh, of the person having earned a salary, but now they've backed off from that position. But honestly, it makes sense for you as employers to really consider paying the kids so that they are excited and happy to come back and work with you um, about it. So anyway, that's a very broad overview of the OPT program. So Aaron, can you explain a little bit more about the STEM, or Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, for OPT's and what benefits they enjoy over regular OPT's.
0: Okay, so sure, absolutely, Sheila. So as Sheila mentioned, the students who've graduated with degrees in science, technology, engineering, or math, STEM, if you will, are eligible for an additional one-time 17-month extension of OPT beyond the original 12 months. Uh, For this to work, the employer, that's the person who's employing the student, must be enrolled in E-Verify and must agree to report termination and employment to the school. The student's DSO also has to provide the student with instructions to give the employer on how to report that type of termination. Employers also agree uh, to make the termination report of OPT employment to the DSO, within 48 hours of termination if the termination takes place before the end of the authorized OPT. So what is termination exactly? Well, termination occurs when the employer knows that the employee has left the employment, so if he's gone, or simply if the student doesn't report for five consecutive business days, whichever is earlier would constitute termination and would require the employer to so report So when you say school. doesn't
1: report for work, what if someone's ill? You mean without notification? Because so, what if I'm ill and I just can't or didn't well, not, or to even notify you and say I can't?
0: Well, not reporting for work would be without notification okay. because the re- fact is if it's a permissible day off, such as a weekend or such as a day when the employer acknowledges that it's okay for you not to be there like vacation, that would not count against you. Um, in addition, if the employer does not receive the instructions from the, student, uh, from the student employee about how to cause the termination to take place, then on the I-20 form, there's an address that lists, that's listed for the school. They should go ahead and send the notice of termination to the school address listed there. Uh, the total time for the initial OPT and for the STEM OPT that a student can be out of work is 120 days. So cumulative. instead
1: of the 90, it's 120. You get an extra 30-day bonus for almost uh, a year and a half and over because of the cap cap extension. So it's a—it's not a whole lot of leeway that people have in in dealing with this issue. So f- thank you, Aaron. Uh, Anna, I know there there's the STEM OPT rule that is out there that is expected to be published very soon in the Federal Register. A lot of companies, employers and individuals, even foreign students are very concerned about what does this mean? When will it become implemented? Can you give us a little bit of overview on that?
2: Absolutely. That's a very hot topic this day. So we are expecting the publication of the new rule shortly. But first, I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of the rule. So what is STEM and where did STEM come from, the STEM OPT rule? Well, it came... Um, It was enacted in April 2008, together with the cap-gap benefit, So it's part of the same rule. But uh, specifically, the STEM OPT rule was invalidated last year in August 2015 by the U.S. District Court um, for the District of Columbia in the case that was called Washington Alliance of Technology Workers v. Department of Homeland Security. In that case, the judge basically said that when DHS enacted the rule in April 2008, they didn't follow the standard uh, rulemaking process. So they, uh, the judge said, okay, the rule is not going to go into, is going to be stopped unless you can show that you are able to uh, publish the rule and have it enacted following. Uh, The uh, standard rulemaking process. So, therefore, the decision was stayed until initially February 12th. DHS published the uh, proposed rule in October last year and they received over 50,000 comments. Oh my God. It was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. So, what did DHS do? They asked that the court Uh, postpone the deadline of initially February 12th until later and the district court agreed they now gave DHS until May 10th 2016 and it's coming up shortly to uh, to publish the final rule and uh, the uh, proposal was already submitted to the Office of Management and Budget which is the last action before the rule goes into the federal register so any day now we expect that the Final rule will be published in the Federal Register, and that's going to be replace, basically replace the April two thousand eight rule. So, do we know what
1: the final regulation may actually look like? Do we have a feel for it based on what well, we, we have, so have far? a feel
2: for it? But nobody knows exactly mm-hmm. what it's going to be. If it's anything like the proposed rule that um, USCIS DHS. Uh, published in October, or announced, uh, rather, in October 2015. So uh, we anticipate that the STEM extension will now be longer. Instead of 17 months, it will be 24 so months. So that's good news for employers that is and very employees. good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will also increase the limitation of one STEM OPT per, life, um, per lifetime to two such authorizations. So a student would actually be... ELIGIBLE FOR TWO STEM EXTENSIONS FOLLOWING TWO INITIAL OPT PERIODS, AND THEY'RE GOING TO BE LONGER NOW, THE MAXIMUM UNEMPLOYMENT WILL BE, OR WE EXPECT IT TO BE EXTENDED TO 150 DAYS, BUT IT ALL COMES AT A PRICE BECAUSE THERE WILL ALSO BE MORE RESTRICTIONS AND OBLIGATIONS um, also applicable to employers. So for example, the proposed rule, as it was announced in October last year, um, was uh, had the provision for a formal plan of training that the employer will be developing with the student. and it' didn't, it didn't look, to be easy so employers should be ready but of course we'll know for sure what the final rule looks like when it goes into the federal register and as soon as it gets published we will publish or we will post uh, an analysis on murthy.com so stay tuned to that for that okay wonderful thank you anna well there's a, as
1: it's sort of always like everything in life nothing is black or white everything's gray and so you have a little bit of both
0: and aaron Well, I was just wondering, Anna. so we know that the judge has ordered the USCIS to put those rules in and to get them up as quickly as possible, but I don't think there's any specific order to OMB. So Office of Management and Budget, are they going to comply with, do you have any sense if they're going to look to comply with the May deadline that we're looking at?
2: That's a good question, Aaron, but I I think everybody will be surprised if they don't. There is so much that went into this, and um, everybody is waiting and OMB knows very well that everybody has been waiting for this role to be published by the deadline. The court is not expected to to postpone it again and we still have more than a month so it's likely that it will be published by the deadline.
1: Yeah, great. So listen, being very mindful of the time because we try to wrap this up between 30 and 45 minutes and we're already past the 20-minute mark at this time, we're going to try to move a little bit faster if we can. So we've completed the CPT and the OPT issues. Now we're going to discuss briefly about transitioning from F1, CPT, and OPT or OPT to the H1B. Uh, Many of you know that there's a quota or cap on H1s maximum an employ maximum number of H1s that are available in the general quota are 65,000 for U.S. master's degrees from non-profit institutions of higher education. Those who have a U.S. master's degree or higher, it's an additional 20,000. And in this 65,000, you also have the quota that's available for Chile and Singapore nationals. So you don't have a lot of uh, uh, cases that are going to be accepted. And what we've seen even just from last year was about one in two or one in three cases that could even be selected for the random lottery. And so you as an employer are investing a huge amount of money paying a lawyer and paying government finding fees and whatever. Only one in three chances that the case will even get selected or get finally get approved. And even though the USCIS will process more cases, they end up denying them after issuing RFEs or requests for evidence. So let's jump to who exactly is subject to the cap. And Aaron, if you would start with that, and then Ana will have you talk about the cap gap. But let's move a little bit faster, because we have a little bit more ground to cover, and we are more than halfway past our time.
0: Sure, no problem. So first, we're going to look to the beneficiary. Then we're going to look to the employment is the best way to refer to it. If you look to the beneficiary, you see if the person has already been approved uh, with an H-1B any time in the past. If they have, then they and they were counted against the cap, then generally they would not be subject to the cap again. So they would be in a pretty good place. Next, if it's determined if the employment, if, uh, next, it's necessary to determine if the employment is cap-exempt. Some employment is exempt from the need for a cap number altogether. This includes employment at universities, and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as nonprofit and government research organizations, if the employment itself is not subject to the cap, again, you would not you would be able to go forward, and you would not need um, you would not need to be counted in this particular lottery. Finally, physicians that obtained a waiver uh, through the Conrad programs are also cap exempt, and just can go forward. So, if a lot of you
1: HR. are employees employers who are working in um, you know, or consulting companies, et cetera, that you could actually have if your employee were to work at a university or at a hospital, affiliate with the university. Guess what? Even if they are your employees on H1B for a for-profit technology or IT company, you could still get the exemption of this. And so let's jump to CapGap, Anna.
2: Well, CapGap means exactly what it sounds. Uh, it's a It's a gap between the uh, F1, uh, the the expiration of the F1 status until the first day of, uh, of employment of petitions that are subject to the cap. So without the cap gap relief, many students would be faced with... The prospect of either having to leave the US or enroll in a new program of study which was the case before April 2008 and as I mentioned the cap gap was uh, relief was introduced together with the same um in the same rule with the stem extension. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the next issue
1: that we are just going to quickly go through is you know the option basically the at this time because the entire ca- because of the court uh, case that Anna had just mentioned, all of this is actually put on hold so we don't even know if the cap gap is technically in effect at this moment, which is kind of a little bizarre and scary. but be that as it may, we're hoping that it means that, This is going to continue uh, because the entire interim final rule, which was published uh, on April 8, 2008, is now on hold, which includes the STEM OPT rule. And so we don't know the clear effect this is going to have, but we're hoping everything will continue as, as business as usual when and if the final... Um, regulations are Im- actually imp- passed and implemented, as Anna had mentioned, by May 10th of
2: 2016. And Anna, you want to say something before we. Exactly. The hope is that the cap gap extension is going to stay in place exactly as it was in the uh, April 2008 rule. The STEM is going to change, probably, yeah. most likely, but the cap gap should stay the but same. But in the
1: rule, the interim rule that they wanted ex- additional time, it had the cap gap in that rule as well. Yes, it, it it's, it's the same
2: way it was, was it before.
1: always was. Before. Aaron, did you want to add something? You look like you were dying to say something.
0: No, I think Anna hit the point okay. exactly that way.
1: Okay, great. So let's just jump to what exactly do the CAP GAP provisions provide? Like what are the restrictions or specific conditions to qualify for the CAP Gap? And Anna after that you might want to clarify events about the maximum period of time. For the CAP-GAP?
0: Sure. So, in short, what CAP-GAP does is it gives a status and work authorization extension for F-1 students in certain situations. One situation, the situation is as follows. Those who timely filed an H-1B case with a request for a change of status, uh, so that means if you ask for consular processing or to get the stamp as it's commonly referred to at the consulate overseas, then it would not apply. That you indicated a start date for your H1B as of October 1, and that you have status and work authorization for students on, on, and status and work authorization for students on OPT automatically continued until October 1st, or until the H1B cap case is rejected, uh, which includes not being picked in the lottery, denied or revoked, whichever is earlier. In order to be eligible for F1, students must have, in order to be eligible, excuse me, F students must not otherwise have violated their status, and it also automatically extends the spouses and children's the, the F2 status as well.
1: Okay, and it's interesting that they've made October 1st a mandatory date each year because it made sense initially, but then they changed the regulations to add five working days in April. So... Potentially, you know, they really instead of October 1st, they could have made it 5th of October or whatever. But I guess they just for convenience and ease, they left it at October 1. So that's just something I'm throwing out there. Anna, can we just jump a little bit into if you could clarify what events affect
2: the maximum period of time of cap Cap extension? That is a very important question for a lot of people. Every year when there is a lottery, and there has been a lottery in the last few years, which we expect to be the case again this year, USCIS um, returns petitions that uh, have not been picked in the lottery, and they process the petitions that have been. And uh, SAVP, as Sheila already introduced the term student and exchange visa program, put in place some of the dates for what exactly it's, it means for students whose petitions were timed file, uh, filed timely, but they don't know if the petition was picked in the lottery or not. So last time that SAVP put the dates in place was 2013, if I'm not mistaken, when uh, they said that it's estimated that USCS should be done issuing all of the receipt notices and returning the petitions by June 2nd. So if your petition was filed properly and you still had employment authorization as of the date of filing, which should be in the first week of April, then you can continue working until June 2nd, even if you don't know if uh, your petition was picked in the lottery. And after that, you have 60 days of grace period until August 2nd. However, in the past few years, USCIS commonly did not issue receipt notices and didn't uh, notify people who filed petitions whether or not they were accepted for processing until later. So if that's the case, your employee should stop working after June 2nd and assume that the petition was not picked in the lottery. And if the receipt comes in later, then they can resume employment. The only thing to consider here is, however, that if the student employee stops working on June 2nd and the petition is receded later, then the time that they stay off work is going to count towards the 90 or 120-day limitation on unemployment.
1: Well, but I'm not very clear. Maybe I'm getting a little confused here I don't know that there was anything anywhere in any regulation which specifically said June 2nd you have to stop why would you stop if I'm the employer and they take three months to issue the receipt notice that's uh, unless I hear unless I get the package back saying sorry you weren't picked for the lottery I'm gonna continue right is there a problem
2: according to SCVP, there is a problem because uh, cap gap is not supposed to apply to students who don't have pending or approved petitions so in that case but it's and of pending
1: course, if I hear otherwise it's pending right
2: well if the uh, check hasn't been cashed if uscis is just being slow notifying people that their petitions have not been accepted for processing then according to svp and uscis your petition is not pending and therefore you should not be working well of course you know it doesn't seem to be fair because they're just being slow and they didn't give you until uh, they only gave you until june 2nd to be able to work if you don't know if it's been accepted or not
0: hmm i've never done that i've never really followed that no i've heard it but it's interesting because there's two ways you can really take this on the one hand you can say they said they're going to make all the decisions and by June 2nd so that means they should have the rejections and the acceptance all done by June 2nd. Exactly right. If they don't have the rejections and acceptance all done if it's not finished so it's really them not keeping that particular deadline and it could they create the gray area I think it's arguable about what to do. I think conservatively we should say the June 2nd is a hard and fast deadline but if I don't know my case was rejected And CapGap says, as long as it's not rejected, I'm permitted to work. The June 2nd deadline seems to be pretty arbitrary, that's all.
2: And uh, remember that this is SVP's
0: Deadline.
1: And anyway, USCIS doesn't care what SEVP says or does, so the two are not necessarily it's always in sync with Exactly. Each other. It's
2: only a point of reference, and we right. mention it here because there is nothing else out there that could indicate what people should do in this situation. True, true,
1: true. So from the petitioning employer's point of view, you as an employer that's on the conference call you would know that the H-1B petition was timely filed, as explained by Aaron and Anna. You would know if you have requested a change of status. You would know if you've asked for an October 1st start date. And until the receipt notice is issued by the USCIS, only the petitioner or the attorney or whoever is, well, is preparing the package would know whether it was properly filed, timely filed, and with the correct date. Once the USCIS actually issues the receipt notice, the information then goes onto their system, and it will update the student's SEVIS record with the SEVP. However, we have seen instances where the data does not transfer properly. And then students, of course, are responsible for checking with the DSO and verifying that their SEVIS record has been updated with the extension, so there isn't this gaping black hole showing that there was no employment. And students also will not be personally notified of a withdrawn or denied H-1 petition. It will only go to the employer, the prospective employer. So it is important for the students to maintain contact with the employer and with the DSO. So if you are the employer on the conference call today, you really need to notify the students so that they're not sort of continuously working, thinking everything is hunky-dory. Okay, so let's, I know we have just maybe five more, 10 more minutes to wrap up. So should the student obtain any new I-20 forms from the school to reflect the fact that he or she's in a period of cap gap extension, Aaron, and? Well, in
0: some cases, yes. So if, for example, the SEVA system does not reflect the proper filing of the H-1B petition, the DSO would need to issue a new I-20 that shows the student's eligibility for the H-1B cap gap and the extension of the student status. This should be enough for employment and for I-9 purposes as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a good rule to always go to the DSO and get an I-20 anyway, because some of the employers would not accept that you know H-1B petition was accepted for processing, therefore it's enough for I-9. So it, it's just good practice to have I-20 issued in all of those cases.
1: Okay. And Anna, what about the issue? I know a lot of employers here on this conference call would be very curious about whether the student who is the uh, prospective employee, the bene- beneficiary of the petition we, for whom the employer has filed a change of status, whether that person would benefit from an automatic extension if the petition has been filed during the grace period time after the completion of the OPT, employment authorization and if so, then would the person be able to continue employment or will it just extend the grace period until the October 1st start date?
2: So if the petition is filed when the student is in his or her grace period, the F1 status is going to be extended. So it's still cap-gap uh, benefit, but the because the EAD was no longer valid during the time, Uh, filing then the student will not be able to continue working so for the employer it's not exactly the benefit of the cap gap gap extension for your employee yes they can stay in the US they can remain in the US and wait for the decision uh, or denial or revocation but until anything happens they can stay here in the US but they will not be able to work Okay. And
1: uh, the last question before we sort of try to wrap this up is, once the H-1B is approved with a change of status, can the student remain in F-1 OPT status and use the remaining time on OPT? Can I have both Aaron and Anna?
0: Sure. So I'm going to say no, they can't. Because once the H-1B petition is approved with a change of status, the beneficiary must begin the H-1B employment on the petition validity date. The remaining time in OPT cannot be reclaimed. It's simply lost.
2: And we have a lot of students, employees, who come to us and said, but I didn't want to, my status to be changed, so I assumed I just I was still on F1, so what do you do in those situations? If the H-1B petition is approved before the October 1st start date, the employer must withdraw the petition or at least... Request from USCIS that the petition be withdrawn, and then hopefully with the acknowledgement of from USCIS that the petition was in fact withdrawn, the student should go back to their DSO and the DSO should correct the CBIS record, and they can do so by contacting the SVP Help Desk. If it's past October first and they have a 994 for the change of status to H-1, then it's too late to do it this way. So okay. they are in H-1B status.
1: Okay. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, so as we know, students and recent graduates, especially STEM grads, are very valuable resources for most of us as employers, most of you on the call. And I know you're taking advantage of it, which is why we have so many people who are listening to this session. And since many of these students and recent graduates are nationals from other countries, Employers, as employers, you need to be particularly aware of all of these potential issues and complexities. We've really touched the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, you can't do a good overview in a short period of time. The federal government is obviously conducting more and more investigations of both universities or schools and H-1 employers, as we all know, in recent years with the fraud detection and national security, with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And violations of H-1 and our work authorization laws can carry both civil and criminal penalties, as many of us are unfortunately aware. And it's important to have your company, your organization's systems in place, follow the rules. There's lots of procedures to follow. And obviously, you want to talk and speak with a knowledgeable immigration law firm, uh, to help you and your business succeed and continue to succeed. And without tooting our own horn, of course, at the Murthy Law Firm, we have an amazing, talented team for approximately 100 professionals right here in Baltimore, another 25 in the liaison office in Chennai, India, a West Coast presence in Seattle, Washington, all there only to serve you and make sure that you and your business continue to be extremely successful so that you can continue to focus on your core competencies of running your business successfully and we by teaming up with you as the world's most preeminent and successful law firm can guide you through the complex labyrinth of constantly changing immigration laws. So on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, Anna Stepanova, and myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm staff, we thank you for making time to join us today. And we look forward to continuing to help you and your business. Have a great day.